Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our topic is the perils of PERM, tips for completing the Form 9089 for labor certification. I have with me two of our brilliant and talented attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm, Jim McLaughlin and Jessica Beaver. They focus their practice almost exclusively in the area of PERM, labor certifications, and I-140 petitions. A very warm and special welcome to each of you and to our IT Serve Alliance members, several hundred technology companies that are joining us for our monthly teleconference series of the Murthy Law Firm. So today's teleconference will discuss the hidden dangers or perils of the PERM labor certification process as it relates to completing the Form 9089. Here, the Murthy Law Firm attorneys, Jim, Jessica, and myself, will go over some of the common issues that you as employers will encounter in preparing the form, and we will share with you some good ideas and tips that will hopefully help you to understand the importance of filling this form accurately and correctly because as they say, it is much less expensive to take care of the problem in advance rather than waiting to correct it later. As we said, as my parents taught me when we were young, prevention is always cheaper than cure. So with that, and with the idea of helping you as employers to avoid Department of Labor audits and to get the PERM approval and then the I-140 approval from USCIS after that, uh, we'll touch briefly on what the process involves. So first st stage in any labor certification, as you know, uh, in any green card process is the labor certification itself. And what does PERM stand for? PERM is the uh, Program Electronic Review Management which is now almost exclusively online, even though you can send it by mail, it's almost impossible, if not difficult, uh, to do so. And the purpose, as you know, of a labor certification is to convince the Department of Labor that you need a person that is full-time for your business, so it's a full-time permanent position where you have a good faith intent to place that person in that position at the time of obtaining the green card, you as the employer will test the U.S. labor market for ready, willing, or able, qualified, willing, and available U.S. workers, and that's why you run the ads in the paper, in the magazine, etc. Protect the U.S. labor market and U.S. workers because Department of Labor wants to make sure that we don't uh, somehow depress the wages and working conditions of the U.S. labor force. And the fourth is to prevent the uh, adverse effect on wages and working conditions of U.S. workers and similarly employed. And from the employee's point of view, obviously they want to get through the first stage of the employment-based green card 
And the employer obviously wants to engage and entice and make the employees feel valued so you can attract and retain your best people to continue to work for you as a company. And I know when you work with the Murthy Law Firm, that is exactly how they will feel. Uh, and hopefully you're doing a great job as an employer in that regard. So, Jessica, if I can ra- go to you. Uh, I guess, to get started. Exactly. So Sheila gave a wonderful overview of why you're doing this green card process. Now we're going to kind of dive into the form 9089. The first being about you, the employer's information. This would be in Section C, what I'm referring to on the first page. Um, When you register and re-register for a Department of Labor account, you can trigger a business existence audit. So you want to make sure that you're putting your legal business name on the appropriate space. You also want to make sure that you register early. Sometimes the Department of Labor asks for verification documents, and you want to make sure that you have time to respond and time to get that um, registration so that you can file online. You can still, like Sheila mentioned, file by mail. However, that can delay the processing of the case. Similarly, making sure that your legal business name is accurate, you want to make sure that that FEIN, the Federal Employer Identification Number, is accurate. Sometimes when we have companies where there's a parent, a subsidiary, a sister company, you just want to make sure that you know which entity is sponsoring and make sure from the start that their correct name and FEIN are there. Yeah, that's true. And just want to jump in real quick. This will also be relevant later down the road at the second stage when you get to the I-140. So it's really important you bake the cake with the right ingredients from the beginning. Exactly. So similarly, you want to make sure that your address is up to date. Even if you've moved after the ads, but before filing, of course, it would have to still be in the, the same metropolitan statistical area. But you want to make sure that your correct address is there at the time at the time of filing. Um, it's okay if, if the employer's address in Section C doesn't match the work location. Sometimes there's satellite offices, other reasons for using other addresses. Just make sure that it's that's accurate. And one of the trends that we're seeing is that this is also important, like, like Jim was mentioning at the I-140 stage, because the USCIS uses its VIBE system to kind of look up information on companies. So you want to make sure that your Dun & Bradstreet account is up to date and also that whatever state that your company is registered in, that the information is also up to date with them, you know, if you move or have a corporate change, because the USCIS is definitely looking at that. Good points. And, you know, I know many of you as employers have said, can I bring my sibling, my brother, my, you know, niece, my nephew, I don't know, different family members, especially with smaller technology-based companies, to have them get sponsored for the green card. So, Jim, what's the process? Well, you know, the the labor application actually asks the question. I want to read it specifically what it says um, and then talk about what this means. So the, the exact language is, is the employer a closely held corporation, partnership, or sole proprietorship in which the alien has an ownership interest? Or, and this is the important part, I think, is there a familial relationship between the owners, stockholders, partners, corporate officers, or incorporators, and the alien? Now, in 2014, the Department of Labor issued uh, an FAQ on this, and they, they looked at this very broadly. Um, obviously, the, uh, the first part, you know, a closely held corporation where the alien has an ownership interest is pretty clear. Um, the second for familial relationship, the, the Department of Labor, when they look at it, they're not just talking about a blood relationship. They're talking about marriage or adoption. And with marriage, you're looking at broadly any in-laws, in-law family, in-laws, brother and sister, parents, 
you have to answer affirmatively yes if that's the case. Um, if you don't, um, you know, it, uh, it is subject to uh, potential misrepresentation, um, and you certainly don't want a fraud hit. Um, and no, I was, go ahead, I was just going to jump in and say that we have seen cases where, you know, you do disclose that there's a familiar relationship. The cases have not been audited. But for those cases that do get the audit, you would still be able to show documentation, essentially that the employee that you're sponsoring doesn't kind of have sway over his position. That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. Basically, what you would argue to the Department of Labor in the audit is that there was a genuine need for the position and uh, it was a bona fide opportunity, meaning it was open to any possible U.S. worker, despite the familiar relationship or the ownership interest. Okay. And what about the contact information? It's very important to have your contact information accurate. Make sure um, the information on there is also accessible by others in your organization. Say somebody's out on, uh, you know, vacation. You know, when for various reasons, particularly uh, the first stage is when this is filed, you're going to get an email um, sent directly to the employer asking you to answer questions. And if somebody can't answer that within seven days, it can cause... um, delays in the processing of your case, and even potentially a denial. So make sure there's multiple um, contacts for that. Yeah, so that's the crux of it, what Jim and Jessica both have been saying, which is you need to ensure, even if you're a business owner, small to mid-sized company, or even if you're with a very large company, but there's only one person uh, within the company that is in charge of immigration-related issues for the company, you want to be sure that some other people, maybe multiple people within the organization, have access to this email account or this mail because sometimes you only have seven business days to respond in many situations and you don't want to miss the deadline because you're traveling abroad and you miss the deadline then all of the money that you've spent and this nine seven to nine months to file the perm just blows up it just vanishes in thin air okay so now let's discuss the general guidelines for preparing a labor certification filing As you know, and many people get really confused with the concept that the green card or perm is filed for a future position because the current position is based on the H-1B or the L-1, et cetera. Those are the requirements at the time of hiring you and have for the temporary current job. The future job is what you expect to hire this person, the salary you will pay this person in the future And if the person was born in a country like India, you could be talking 5, 10, 15, 20 years or longer in EB3 and about 10 years in EB2. What are the minimum requirements for the job? Not your preference as an employer. Hey, if I would like somebody with five years experience, but the job only required a bachelor's and two, well, then that's what we need to put on the PERM labor certification form. It's the minimum education and the minimum uh, work experience that is relevant. We also need to obtain what's called the PWD, or the Prevailing Wage Determination, from the Department of Labor based on the job duties, the sophistication, the complexity, the work location, etc. And that's what the law firm lawyer will help you. And finally, you as the employer would need to show that you've gone through all of the zillion hoops to show appropriate recruitment uh, in terms of satisfying the Department of Labor For example, with most professional positions, you may have two Sunday advertisements back-to-back. You will have to file the notice of posting, the SWA job order, which is the state workforce agency that you've submitted the application, and you would have to pick three out of the ten factors that are chosen. 
So I'll tell you what, that's just a very broad overview. Now, Jim and Jessica are going to continue to discuss how exactly the matrix system works in drafting the 1989. And we will start off with that and the job offered that you offer as an employer and what are the minimum requirements. So with that, Jim, can I have you start? Yeah, absolutely. So we're looking at Section H here. Um, it's the outline of what the future job is. And in a lot of ways, it may be, you know, everything in this application is important, but this is really what you and the beneficiary is going to focus on. Um, with the Section H, you know, the first thing you talk about is where is the position? Um, now, the position may be in-house, and that's very simple. You just put uh, your work address, the office address on there. But a lot of times, especially if it's IT consulting, uh, which is an awful lot of our clients, you know, there may be travel, there may be relocation. Um, it's very vitally important to talk about this with your attorney who's uh, preparing this for you, ideally using the Murthy Law Firm, to discuss what is the most uh, appropriate language for this section based upon what the specifics of the job are for the future position. You know, uh, something Sheila mentioned as well is you're using the actual minimum requirements. There are no preferences here. You're listing first the title of the position and just keep in mind this is different than the occupation title that may be listed in the prevailing wage determination. This is your internal title. You need to be consistent about your minimum requirements and like I said, you can't use preferences. You're including if there's any training. Training for many professionals may not be listed specifically on here. Generally, training is for medical residency, so doctor petitions. Um, you're also could be listing for an experience requirement on the job experience. You could be listing an alternative requir requirement regarding experience, and you may also have alternative degree uh, requirements. But like I said, and I've repeated multiple times, keep in mind this is your minimum requirement. Uh, Jessica, what about the, all? like Jim just talked about, the alternative requirements? Mm. So when can an alternative sort of either combination of educational experience, because that's a big red flag. Well, for example, we know a lot of employers, you know, have positions where perhaps they're willing to accept someone that has a bachelor's degree in experience, but, you know, would also be willing to accept someone that has a master's degree in experience. This is one of those things that you definitely want to speak to your attorney about because you want to make sure that the requirements themselves are equivalent to each other. For example, if the position requires a bachelor's in five because you're doing an, an EB2 future position, something like a master's in three would be considered equivalent. What I mean by that is it's kind of to kind of get out of legal terms with the SVP, it's kind of that the bachelor's degree equals two points and the master's degree equals four points. So you want to make sure that the education and the experience line up with one another. In addition to that, you also, um, if you're willing to accept foreign education equivalent, want to indicate that on, on your form as well. And a lot of times in age 14, People want to list things about education, such as employer will accept three or four year bachelor's degree. Keep in mind that if the employer is willing to do that, that is one of those things that would likely move the case down to, to an EB3 case. But you do want to make sure that your full requirements are listed um, on the position. Right. I also want to hop in and just say that these are all things you really should be thinking about at the beginning. Before really you're even drafting the form, before you've done recruitment, make sure that you've you know, on a, on a spreadsheet, on, on a Word document, you know, drafted what the true minimum requirements are, and you've discussed this with your attorney. You know, and one of the things that we've seen is a lot of employers will come to me and say, 
for example, even in a tech company, but less so, uh, you know, I do a lot of business with a, in a foreign country. I have staff. We have a you know, satellite office or whatever, a liaison office, a subsidiary, let's say, in Andhra Pradesh or Telangana and, um, or, or in China or, or in another part of India, et cetera. And, you know, why can't I say, in addition to knowing all of the software and programming languages, we also need a foreign language requirement like Telugu or Hindi or... Uh, you know, Chinese, Mandarin or whatever. Remember, the minute you mention any foreign language that is a minimum required for the position, then you would have to check yes. And then there's a much higher likely risk that the U.S. Department of Labor will do an audit because that's a simple way that most people born in another country have the advantage of knowing foreign languages where most Americans, unfortunately, unfortunately, don't have that. And so they feel like it's a make-believe, generally a padded false requirement that's in most cases not real. In fact, there's been cases where in a Chinese restaurant when they said we need Chinese uh, chef to speak to the workers, even where 90% of the clients were Chinese nationals or people from that part of the world that might benefit from speaking the language, the Department of Labor and USCIS have actually said, well, we're not sure that that's required to be a good chef because to be a chef, all you need to do is converse. You're in the United States. You speak English. You're not required to speak other foreign languages. So I was just going to jump in, Sheila. A good example of what you know, a foreign language would be required as something like a bilingual counselor. Well, mm-hmm. that's essential to the job. Or even maybe director of sales for South America, something that there's a clear nexus because you must speak the foreign language in order to perform the job duties. Exactly. Foreign language teacher, interpreters, all of those. Obviously, you have to have a foreign language. But for a computer engineer, for a chef, for a cook, no, probably not. And then the other one is the section H14 on the form ETA 1989, which is the catch-all section. So there's something called the Kellogg language where, you know, where the employer traditionally would say any suitable combination of education and or work experience is acceptable to the employer. And that can actually, at one point it was sort of required mandatory language. Now it could actually create its own set of complications. And I think we'll get a little more into it in a little while. But where you talk about travel, licensure, special requirements, education language, all of those. So it's called alternative uses of the language. And we'll hopefully have a few minutes to touch upon it as well. And then you have H15, which is a combination of occupations, uh, which also can sometimes be a red flag for Department of Labor and, U- and or USCIS because you have the prevailing wage determination that you need to get, and it's more difficult when you have multiple job duties that overlap each other. And some, in most such cases, you would require something called the business necessity letter to explain why you are cre- why your business or company needs this job that is considered to be kind of a mishmash of three or four or two other jobs. With that, I'm going to have you, Jim, if you don't mind, talk about recruitment. Sure. So at this point, you've developed your position. You know what the minimum requirements are. And now you're ready to actually start advertising. Um, now, the forum's going to ask you, is it a professional occupation or a college or university professor? There is a difference there. Obviously, you'll know based upon your industry. But one thing to keep in mind with professional occupations, when you're reviewing resumes, which potentially in another teleconference we'll get into, you're looking at minimally qualified. Like we've talked about here, 
the minimum requirements for the position. College or university professors, you're looking at the more qualified standard. Now, there haven't been any significant FAQs from the Department of Labor. We have heard from the stakeholders' minutes just recently that they do expect there to be uh, proposed regulatory changes, um, but there hasn't really been too much lately. Um, however, there have been an awful lot of interesting bulk of cases. Some of the bulk case examples that we've seen this year are a little troubling, and we'll kind of get into why they're troubling, but one such case talked about how um, you know, the SWA is not subject to the same restrictions as a regulation for, for the Sunday newspaper, which, yes, they're in different regulations. That's that's accurate. The uh, case actually held that it's okay on the SWA to have a minimum and a maximum of a dollar because they felt that the worker would know that that's not the actual wage for the position. Right. Now, now why that potentially is troubling is uh, a lot of SWAs and what a lot of employers may uh, list on uh, their advertisements. And the SWA, luckily in this case, isn't considered advertisement. But a lot of employers don't like to list the job, the salary they're actually listing. So the list uh, depends on experience, competitive compensation. And we've seen that in the past two years or so, year and a half, to be an issue. Um, which hasn't been determined yet specifically from Balka. Right. And similarly, there was a, a case that said that it's okay to have drug check, uh, background check required in the SWA, even though it wasn't in the prevailing wage or 989. This is a little bit of a different approach that we've seen coming from Balka, but, you know, it's always safer to kind of match your prevailing wage to the ads to the 989. Right. right. Don't have anything in your ads that's not on the 989 or the That is 100% safest way to look at it. But some companies, large employers, universities, hospitals, and even larger companies sometimes say, obviously, every single person, we're going to do a reference check. And so something like a reference check, a drug and background check, you know, sometimes they say, and you don't need to mention that specifically, they say, because it's obvious it applies to every single position at that employer or company. But as both Jim and Jessica just mentioned, it's always safer to have everything in the SWA mentioned on the form to avoid sort of triggering an audit or resulting in complications for the perm case. Right, exactly. Now, you know, one thing I'd also like to mention is, you know, the form's going to ask you if you've had any layoffs. Um, now, what they're looking for is, have you had any layoffs in the area of intended employment and the occupation involved in the application, or in a related occupation within six months immediately preceding the filing of the application? So if you have had any layoffs, you definitely want to talk to your attorney, talk about the specifics of, of what that means. You know, you'll talk with your attorney about the difference between, you know, a layoff situation and somebody who quits, you know, as a U.S. worker. What is the area of intended employment? Um, it's really specific to the job um, and the region where the job is. Uh, so you'll definitely want to be talking to your attorney about that to determine what's the correct way to answer this. Exactly. And also, obviously, and I don't know if we discussed this about payment. Previously, I know a lot of companies would tell the individual, since it's a future job offer and you don't have to be currently employed by me, um, even if you're working on H1 for somebody else, I'll do this green card for you. Uh, the olden days, it was the ETA 750A and B instead of the current 1989. But you know what? You can just give me 10000 or $25,000 or $50,000 for the processing. Uh, or sometimes they would just say, pay all of the government filing fees and legal fees yourself and give me only 5000 or 10000 Well, according to the Department of Labor, any payment for the application of the process is completely improper 
unethical and actually illegal, according to them. And if there is a bargaining representative, like with unions, then you need to actually share a lot of that information with the bargaining representative and post that notice uh, with the bargaining representative because they have their own negotiated contract wages as opposed to sometimes the Department of Labor prevailing wage, which has its own interesting nuances as we've seen from time to time. That's right. And just keep in mind that those uh, the foreign national uh, cannot pay for the legal fees or the advertisement costs. It's really anything for having to do with the labor certification. For the portion of it, but the exactly. employee is allowed to pay for the I-140 and 485 because Department of Labor is not involved with that process, and USCIS hasn't clearly come out and stated that it is not permissible. That's right. Okay, so now let's go to the next session where I'm going to have Jessica talk a little bit about the qualifications of the employee or beneficiary and how those qualifications meet or satisfy the minimum requirements as laid out on that form. Right. So Section J is kind of how the beneficiary meets the minimum requirements. You have to keep in mind that you want to know exactly what your beneficiary has, how they qualify for the position at the beginning of the process. This means making sure, you know, that you look at their education and experience and have, you know, proper documentation to to move forward. One of the questions that's asked is the highest level achieved as requested by the job opportunity. So, for example, if they have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in the relevant field, you would want to list the master's degree because it's the highest level achieved. But for example, if they have a master's, you know, in in math or music or something that's not related to the position, then you would not want to to list that. And when you're filling out this form, you want to make sure that everything kind of mirrors Section H. And that's because when you answer these questions about your beneficiary, you're referring back like we mentioned before, back to is there training, is there experience, um, you know, that type of thing. That's so there are examples, actually, that I know we've given. Sorry, Jim, were you trying to say something as oh, well? Oh, no, go right ahead, Sheila. Okay. So, you know, for example, if you have an MS plus zero, then in sections J17 to 21, the answer might be not applicable. Right. So it's very important, like we've talked about, to make sure that you know the minimum requirements and make sure that you're answering every question accurately in that Section J kind of mirroring Section H. Right. It comes back to the matrix system where everything lines up with each other. Uh, but, you know, off, an awful lot of times you know, we'll come across an employer who has been employing somebody for a long time and they're like, these this is why we want this person in this future position. We want to sponsor them because they've been with us. They've learned how we do things. But... With the Department of Labor, they're very specific. And when you get to the I-140 stage with USCIS, you cannot use on-the-job experience unless it's considered substantially different, which generally speaking is 51% or more different job duties. Now, you have situations where somebody has been, um, you know, uh, just say an accountant, and now they're going to sponsor them for a program analyst. person now has a degree and wants to move into the field. That clearly is substantially different. But where you get into trouble is when you have, say, a senior software engineer, and now uh, they were a software engineer. Now you want to sponsor them for a senior software engineer position. That may not really be substantially different. So you're going to have an issue there. Um, so you want to talk to your attorney about that. You're basically going to have to compare the two job descriptions and determine the percentage of time spent on each job description. 
another area where it is acceptable, however, is say you are a senior software engineer and now you're a managerial, you're in a manager position for software engineers. That, generally speaking, is acceptable for using on the job experience. Because the rule is minimum 50% of the job duties have been different from the prior job to the new or future job in order to use the experience gained with the current employer. What about J22, section J22, Jess? So kind of going back to what Sheila was talking about first with payment, you know, one of these payment topics is, you know, did the employer pay for any of the beneficiaries' education or training? Some companies, you know, do pay for everyone, you know, everyone's degree, then that's fine. You can put yes and just have documentation for the audit that this is the acceptable practice. If the employer is just willing to kind of just pay for the foreign national and not other people, then it's not okay because you're you're giving the foreign national different benefits than you would any worker. So if it's the company policy and everyone's kind of getting it, then you can you can say yes and just have that documentation to show that that's the standard procedure for that business. Okay, and so we've done Section H, which is the job and job duties and job descriptions, Section J, which is the employee's qualifications. Then after H, I, J, K, now we have Section K, where the prior work experience of the employee or beneficiary has to be listed. And this should list all other aspects of how the employee qualifies for the advertised position that has not been addressed in the other section, such as the required licenses, certifications, additional degrees, et cetera. And so the experience that qualifies for the position, how, we, how this person now meets that position or the, satisfies the three years of work experience, because now you are saying exactly what the employee had. Remember, there was a recent Murthy Bulletin article on the technical glitches that happened with Section K that we just uh, published. Um, So if you're not subscribed to the Multi Bulletin, please go to multi.com, click on it, and you're welcome to do it. It's another fabulous free service that we offer to help employers and foreign nationals understand what is happening with the gazillion myriad changes in immigration law. But basically, under this Section K, what was happening is when the employer or the attorney was completing the Section K 1989 online form, the data would miraculously vanish. Uh, And so then the form was, they hit send or submit, and the Department of Labor would deny the case because there was no experience mentioned of the employee but now Department of Labor luckily has agreed that there is a technical glitch, that they're working on it, and hopefully in the next few weeks that will be taken care of. Right. If there are any of you listening that have had that situation, then you just want to keep in mind that you will still file a motion, and what you'll want to include with that is just evidence that the information was there previously. So hopefully you're keeping copies of each stage of the process, um, and the Department of Labor has stated that they should be overturning those denials with that evidence. Yes, and that is important because, as you know, it takes seven to nine months just to prepare the file, get the prevailing wage determination, run the newspaper ads. And for many people, getting that priority date locked in, especially when you have a 10 or 15 or 20-year waiting time frame, because while on the one hand, you as an employer want that employee to stay with you, hopefully for life, um, at the end of the day, if people feel very depressed and frustrated with the lengthy process, some people actually have said to me, you know what, I'll go back to my home country because I just don't have the patience to wait 20, 25 years to get my green card. Yeah, and Jim? Uh, I just wanted to say one last thing here with uh, Section K. 
um, before we move on, it's, it's important to reiterate that it's not just the work experience, it's really anything else that qualifies the person for the position. So anything you put in Section H14, you add a special license or knowledge, something that maybe somebody didn't get through experience so it wouldn't be listed as an employer, say it was some sort of knowledge through their undergraduate program or a particular license they have, such as CPA. You want to list it here. Now, although the form doesn't specifically allow you to change the presets, they have said that you can basically just include it in the job experience section, whatever's relevant for those qualifications. Right. Right. I know we are always very sensitive to the issue because we tell you it's between 30 to 45 minutes every month that we like to offer this free service and we know how busy you are as professionals and we're just at 30 minutes. So hopefully we'll wrap up in the next five minutes or so. But remember, the ETA 1989 is signed by you as the employer or the employer's agent under penalty of perjury, which, as you know, is a federal criminal offense to provide knowingly and intentionally provide wrong information or sometimes you should have had knowledge even if you say well I didn't know the law doesn't necessarily excuse you because you should have known certain things going on in your own business under your nose so it's extremely important to understand the process double check everything have your in-house legal team or whoever is working on it, if it's you individually, appreciating and understanding the issues. And I can see Jessica waving her arms <laughs> and saying something. I was just going to say, we, we also have seen this come up in people's interviews at the I-45 stage years down the road. So you are also signing this as the beneficiary. You are signing this as the employer. Everyone needs to make sure that everything on there is accurate because we have seen it come up. And especially if you have done a labor certification before, you want to make sure that um, – you're not giving different dates for experience. You want to make sure that you have consistency, you know, based on those experience letters or resumes that you have. That's an right. excellent point. So if you as an employer are filing multiple uh, open positions, you're running advertisements, filing perms for many of your different employees, you don't want to say, programmer, analyst, this person needs only a bachelor's in two years, and this programmer analyst requires a bachelor's in three, and this one requires bachelor's in five, and this one requires a master's in one. We, You as an employer needs to work with your legal team or with your HR person or whoever is creating the jobs and positions in the company so that there is consistency, clarity, transparency, and uniformity because you cannot say that you need different levels of experience and education because then it comes across as something looks really improper and could create bigger problems and end up costing a lot more money in the long run for you as an employer. Right. Consistency with your positions, but also, for example, if you had an employee that previously had an EB3 case and now perhaps you're doing an EB2 case for them because they've you know gotten more education or experience, you want to make sure that their work history and things are also consistent with one another. So it's consistent for the employer with the positions, but it's also consistent for the beneficiary if they've had other filings to the government. Absolutely. I tell people all the time, whatever information you've given to the government, remember, even in the olden days, pre-technology, pre-computers, they would try to catch it, but it was more difficult. But today, with everything being accessible with a hit of the button, 
the absolute critical importance of making sure that all of the data is consistent and there's no mismatch is critical. And hopefully, if you have a core set of people within your organization that are following the proper rules, that is going to be very, very helpful for you as an employer. It is strange and unusual in the sense that there's been no recent Department of Labor frequently asked questions or FAQs in almost the past several months, one year, uh, from middle of 2015 to middle of 2016, which is unusual. But at least that means that there's nothing earth shatteringly different, that they're changing the position. So that's the positive way to look at it. Uh, if you have a strong in-house legal team or you're working on it yourself, fantastic. If hopefully they are listening to today's teleconference on how to, to ensure that the ETA 1989 is filled out correctly, and hopefully they know many of these issues. But to the extent that there's case law or cases or Department of Labor policies that change any of these, we will continue to update and share the updates with you in future teleconferences to continue to help you and your business to thrive and succeed in this complex, ever-changing world of immigration. We at the Murthy Law Firm always have a keen interest and desire, in fact, a passion to help you and your business to be successful. And we realize that immigration is just one component in a very difficult business that you have to juggle in finding clients, finding business, getting contracts, and all of that. But it is an important component of your business. And if you don't have a great law firm, we certainly hope that you will seriously consider the Murthy law firm and our legal team to help you to accomplish your immigration goals. We have been told over and over again over the years that a lot of employers have found that they are able to attract and retain their best employees, best consultants in the technology fields by telling them that they are working with the great Murthy law firm, Murthy.com. But if you have somebody else, God bless you. We are so happy and excited to continue to help you be successful, and we look forward to having you next month with us at our next monthly teleconference, and we will share that information with you in advance. Have a fabulous day, and thank you to Jessica Beaver, Jim McLaughlin, and our entire Muthi law firm team. And on behalf of everyone, thank you and have a great day.